Welcome to Behave, the behavioural science podcast where we discuss, explore and aim to showcase the practical benefits of layering behavioural insights to deliver more effective marketing results and business growth. Hosted by Pedro Martins, a director at Total Media, the behavioural planning agency. Remember to rate us on wherever you listen to podcasts and for any questions, feedback or requests for future topics, please email us at podcast at behave.co.uk. For more information on anything discussed in the episode and useful downloads, please visit behave.co.uk forward slash podcast. Good afternoon. And firstly, thanks for joining us on this uh, sunny Wednesday afternoon. I know most of you, and you could well be in the garden because I can't see you. There's a lovely day. Um, I'm Pedro Martins. I sit on the board at uh, Total Media Group and Behave. Uh, and today we've got a real treat for you. We have William Hamner Lloyd who is the head of strategy um, of Behave, our behavioral consultancy that focuses on driving commercial growth by understanding people and is part of the Total Media Group uh, with offices across the UK and internationally. And we've got Steve Brunt, who's planning director at the Behaviors Agency, a creative agency that uses behavioral science to make marketing more effective. And between them, they've got circa 32 years experience working on brands such as Unilever, Co-op, BP, Weedabix, Labrooks, Britbox, Epson, and many, 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 many others. And there, you'll see a few case examples as they go through it. But today, what we're here to talk about, I think we're all aware, or very much aware, of the huge gap between what people say they do and what they actually do. And Will and Steve are going to take you in a very interesting ride for the next sort of 30 to 40 minutes on how you navigate this uh, with real examples of how we've done it as, as a group. Um, and we're going to talk to you about how you can help identify customers, establish the right moment to target them how you communicate with them effectively with a message that resonates, and then ultimately how you measure and you choose the right metrics to measure the sort of behavioral change that you're after. Now, a couple of housekeeping. Obviously, if you've got any questions, put them in the chat and I'll come back on at the end to ask both Will and Steve. Uh, but if there's nothing else, then I'm gonna hand over straight to Will and Steve before my dog barks and my kids get home. Okay, over to you guys. Thanks, Pedro. Thanks, Pedro. Um, See so yeah. Today we're talking about the gap between what people say and what they do. Uh, I think it's fair to say that this is not necessarily a new issue. Um, within advertising, it's been talked about uh, historically before. Um, and, you know, David Overview touched on this before when he said the problem is People don't think how they feel, don't say what they do, and don't do what they say. And it's therefore been known, at least amongst quite a high proportion of, of the advertising world for quite a while. Um, but it hasn't necessarily been fully acted on and considered in everything that we do. Um, and I think behavioral science came along and has just added a huge amount of depth of research, nuance, and understanding to this. Um, but first, kind of an example of it. So. Uh, people can't really tell you what they want. Uh, and often if you just ask them outright, you can get very misleading information that can be very damaging to your business. Uh, a famous example is from the Trinity Mirror Group, um, where they asked people uh, what they wanted uh, out of the newspaper. And they said they wanted a politically neutral uh, newspaper that focused on long form articles. Uh, and they released this uh, in February, um, and it closed by May. Uh, and Simon Fox, the CEO of Trinity Mirror, uh, said at the end of the day, what consumers told us they would do and what they actually did were different things. 
And it just shows the danger that if you just rely on that information, uh, it can end up being very damaging. And this, as I said, has been backed up by lots of different research um, across lots of different areas. There was one study um, by Spotify uh, that they did with Sony where they asked people uh, what music they listened to. And uh, they asked them who their most listened to artists were and then compared it to who they actually listened to on Spotify. And what they found was that people were incredibly bad at telling you who they listened to. Uh, they remembered the cooler artists as being the most popular one. They remembered the peak moments of listening much more than all the time spent with music playing in the background while working or traveling. Uh, and it wasn't, wasn't a highly correlated answer. Interestingly, there were ways to ask the question that got you towards more accurate answers. For instance, if you ask people what music they listen to in the gym, they were much more likely to be able to give you an accurate answer. So it does indicate that people can't tell us what they do often with broad questions, but we can start to get a bit smarter in the way we ask questions to tease out what they actually do. Yeah, it's a good example of the narrowing of context, isn't it, Will? Like, as soon as you get things in context and you put people in a particular situation, then they're, they're much more able to identify what's happening. Exactly. And I think, you know, that's a real learning that we can take throughout this. Um, and certainly we can't say, you know, what we will do a lot of the time. Uh, this is one interesting academic study uh, from a while ago where they asked people uh, who claim what drinks they drank uh, and it was focused on fizzy drinks. And 42% of people who claimed to drink a brand daily in a survey didn't record drinking at all in the following week. And it just shows, you know, sometimes the massive discrepancy there can be between what people claim to do and what we actually record their behavior as. Steve, do you mind controlling the slides? I'm having an issue with it. So the question about this is, is why is this the case? Like, what is this gap um, all about? And, and the simple answer is because just not how our brains work. You ask us questions about stuff, it engages a different part of the brain than when, when we actually have to face that decision in the real world. Our real world decisions are generally guided by the part of our brain that does 90% of the heavy lifting, the, the system one part that's intuitive and, and reactive um, and just uh, takes on the context and the, and the uh, stimulus that's in front of it and reacts to it. Um, and, and that part of the brain likes um, bright, shiny objects and quick things and easy things. Um, and it doesn't like thinking about stuff. And then the second part of the brain does all the real analytical lifting. Um, and, and unfortunately, if you kick that part of the brain in, as research tends to, then people start trying to explain their actions in ways that don't actually reflect how the real world works. Um, this is something that Daniel Kahneman um, famously found out year, many years ago, decades ago. Um, and, and he explained it in this simple way of system one and system two, which is obviously a gross simplification, but at least gets, a, gets across the idea that a part of our brains um, is controlling most of our actions in real autopilot mode. Um, but it's not the part that answers questions in research. Uh, that part um, is analytical. Um, I've even known research agencies that go two levels of this. They'll ask you why you're thinking something. Uh, they'll ask you what you're thinking, and then they'll ask you why you're thinking it. Um, and it's two levels of system two on top of what would actually just be an automatic process responding to a set of stimulus, um, which all of our decision making usually feels like. I think there's the famous Kahneman quote, isn't there, that uh, thinking is to humans as swimming is to cats. We yeah. can do it when we have to, but we'd much rather not. Brilliant, yeah, I love that one. Um, so the question is, how can we bridge this gap? Um, you know, ultimately, we, we all as marketers want to know um, what, what we need to do to satisfy our customers. What, what is it they want? What is it they need? And what is it they'll respond to? 
Um, and, and asking those questions of consumers is incredibly limited, but there are ways around this challenge. There are ways that we can do it. Um, and, and Will and I have been doing this for many years and we've, we've um, in order for the purpose of this presentation, culled together five simple answers to that question. And we don't really need to go any further than this. We could just stop on this slide, but since we've got a whole load of time and a whole load more slides, we will carry on. So the first one is knowing what you're really trying to change. So fundamentally, all marketing is really about behavior change. It's all about influencing behavior. If it isn't influencing behavior, what is it doing? Um, so the question is, what behavior are you actually trying to influence? What is it you want to change? Quite often, we, we set ourselves objectives that aren't realistic, that, aren't, that don't actually reflect the, 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 the behavior that we're really trying to change. So uh, a couple of examples of this. Um, if, you, if you do set yourself examples, uh, do set yourself objectives that are really about behavior change, that are really about having an impact on business measures like um, sales or, or even just a, you know, a deeper level of behavior, those campaigns are generally much more successful. Like, firstly, because you know what you were trying to achieve. Uh, and secondly, because they hit a target, a context target that actually works. If you try and get people to just change attitudes or have a bit more awareness of something, that fades really quickly. You're competing in a world where people are getting hit by 10,000 messages a day. Um, you're, you're not gonna last in, in terms of impact. Whereas if you get action, um, you, you may well do that. So these guys, Bennett and Field, did a, did a whole load of study on this and, and found that um, actually those hard or behavioral objectives are much more successful uh, in terms of campaigns than, than those that are much softer. Um, so it, it's, more, it's more successful, uh, therefore it's definitely worth doing. I think that, that broadly reflects that there's still a large proportion of um, people within advertising who think you change what someone thinks, you'll change what they do. But often it's actually you change what they do and then they'll post-rationalise what they think to fit that. Um, and when you start to realise that it's really about focusing on changing what people do, a big part of the challenge is understanding exactly how you're trying to influence their behaviour and what behaviour you're trying to influence. It can be as small as, are you getting them to notice something they would walk past in the supermarket? Or are you getting them to go to a section of the supermarket they wouldn't normally go to to search a product out? And those are two very different types of decisions and behaviors you're trying to influence. And one of the things we do is interesting research to look into this. So historically working with Weetabix, uh, we want to understand the impact on their behavior that we were having. And we seem to see this odd thing in the data which showed that we would advertise, we wouldn't see sales go up particularly, and then a little bit later we would see them grow. Uh, and to understand what was happening, we ran a survey where every day we asked 50 people whether they'd eaten Weetabix that day. And it links back to Spotify that often you can't ask people broad questions, but if you ask them a certain context of what they've done very recently, they can give you a good answer. And what we saw was that by running this tracker, when we advertised Weetabix, we saw an increase in the number of people who said they'd eaten Weetabix that day. And what was happening was that lots of people have lots of cereals in their cupboard. And when the advertising came on, the decision that we were influencing was them going to the cupboard and deciding which cereal to take out rather than influencing the decision at the supermarket. They would then choose Weetabix from their cupboard, run out and a little bit later replenish their stock of Weetabix and they'd see their sales go up. But what's really important here is by understanding that we were influencing that decision, we could really start to tailor some of the creative, some of the media decisions to focus on the uh, behavior we were trying to influence rather than just assuming that it was sales in store that was the key behavior we were influencing. Yeah, I love this example. I just think it's such a great example of the difference between being a consumer and being a shopper. Um, you know, fundamentally, like 
consumption is is being driven here and shopping comes later later down the line it might not even be the same people obviously that's the other thing um so yeah i think it's a, it's a really good example of, of how this kind of stuff can work so uh, uh, oh, carry on is it so talking sorry steve just mind doing the clicking when we go through uh, it. Oh, yeah. the finding so we talked about actually that weetabix example and how the people who consume it the influence might not be the same as the people buying it and i think you know it opens up that notion that often you've got to find the people most open to change and that you're most likely to be able to influence and this is not always the people that would tell you they are most open to change and most interested in your product and this was really relevant for a brand uh, we work with called BritBox. So we were trying to help them launch a profitable direct consumer revenue stream for ITV. So this was bringing in a new SPOD service to compete in the UK against Netflix, against Apple TV, Disney Plus, and a whole Amazon, a whole range of other competitors. And they'd done uh, quite a lot of research themselves into this. Um, and what they looked at was a survey asking people in silo, would you be interested in BritBox with a description of what BritBox was? Uh, and what they get gleaned out of that was that 25 to 44 year olds with one SBOD subscription already were the audience most likely to get BritBox based on those who said, yes, uh, I would get this service. But the problem was that A, that was just claim data. And B, the decision didn't reflect the decision they were going to make in the real world. In the real world, people were deciding between Disney, Apple, Amazon Prime, lots of other services about which one they would get next. And those services were largely back then targeting that 25 to 44 year old group. They had billions of pounds to spend on content and over 150 million pounds a year spending on advertising. And we said, realistically, if BritBox targets that group, they're not necessarily going to win in the battle to get them to choose them. And actually, this is just plain data. Is there more layered data, more interesting range of resources that we can look at to see who may actually be interested in BritBox? So we looked at actual behavior and found that actually it was older audiences were more likely to be already watching the shows that were going to be on BritBox. We looked at social data and analyze the sentiment about people that were talking about BritBox pre-launch. Uh, and we actually found that 55 plus were the people who had the most positive sentiment towards BritBox rather than younger audiences. We also found that 55 plus was the fastest growing escort audience. So we didn't just care about what people's behavior was now, but the trend for what people's behavior was gonna be in the future. And finally, we placed all of that research and insight within the context of the market. And when you look at BritBox versus Disney Plus, versus Apple, versus Amazon, and versus Netflix, it, it's one USP really was its British content. And so we felt the audience it should go after were people who were British content fans, an audience you could create on touch points based on the people who watched British content over American content. And at launch, we had this other view of the audience. And so at launch, we went with two audiences that we were targeting in digital. Uh, and it was really good because it got a really clear picture of which audience was more effective. We found that the British content fan audience was nearly two and a half times cheaper to convert than the audience of 25 to 44 year olds who already had one subscription. And they made up 84% of the volume that we converted in the first three months, which just showed that it was, it was a much better performing audience. And actually including that was key to the success of BritBox. 
And I think it's just a really strong example of if you rely on just asking people what they want and base your targeting off of that, you could be going after completely the wrong audience. Yeah, and also looking out for which behaviours you think are plausible to change as well, I think, Will, because obviously if you're already into that content, changing where you watch it is a different thing to if you're into that format, changing what you watch. Uh, those, those, those different behaviours are, are different kinds of competitors, aren't they? So, you know, you kind of got more of a chance in this context to maybe move people in terms of where they watch it rather than moving what they're watching. Um, and that is, a, you know, it's a, it, it's a really important sort of nuance about how we think about what kind of behaviour we're talking about and how susceptible to change people are at a given time. And I think, you know, analysing in this way means you can find those behaviours you can influence, but also potentially those behaviours your competitors aren't trying to influence. Yeah. Uh, we're therefore going after an audience that doesn't have 150 million of ad spend already going after it. I, I'm going to take you on to your bizarre next chart now, Will. Oh, thank you. So for us, one of the things that this shows is the importance of layered insight, having multiple data sources to understand the audience and the nuance. One of the ways this can be described is the idea of blind researchers touching an elephant, and all of them would have a different view of what the elephant was. But if they compared their different views, they might develop a full picture or a more kind of well-known uh, story example around Katy Perry, which was that if you look at her Facebook followers, then 90% of them are female. And you could glean from that that uh, her following is female. Those would be the people interested in her music. But actually, if you look at the people who listen to her on Spotify, it's 50% male and 50% female. Uh, and what that does give you a bit of a nuanced picture. It probably means when it comes to uh, releases of new music, you should be targeting men and women. But when it comes to uh, her gigs or kind of, you know, hoodies and tops and kind of other elements that she wants to sell, the fans are probably the group that you want to target. And that'll be a much more female skewing audience. And so by getting layered data, you can not only target the right audience, you can target the right element of the product to the right audience. I know Pedro has that Katy Perry sweatshirt in his cupboard somewhere, doesn't he? I'm sure I'm confident that Pedro is that kind of guy. And since he's got his screen and mount turned off, he can't even respond. Oh, he's got it back. Right. And I think, you know, this brings open the question. It's not just who, but sometimes it's when. And one of the things that behavioral science shows is that context is so important. And that actually, in the right context, uh, lots of people that you might not consider would be open to your brand. Uh, and one of the examples of this is that uh, actually life events are a really powerful moment to target someone. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons for this. One is it destabilizes our existing habits. And so when you move house, change jobs, graduate, get married, get divorced, have kids, a lot of your existing habits become destabilized. And there's an opportunity for brands to become a new habit that someone develops. And that's often an easier time to influence someone than when they're going about their normal life. There's lots of research, academic and others, that shows this, but some of the interesting research is Richard Schott and the Choice Factory, uh, showing that 21% of consumers who have experienced a life event had switched brands recently, versus 8% on average. So it's two and a half times as many, making it you know, a really good group for targeting to uh, adopt your brand. This isn't just um, this isn't just brands relevant to that life event, is it either? The other thing is it's when you change shampoo because your whole habits um, they're all intertwined. So actually, your your susceptibility to change at those moments is just greater because you haven't got all the patterns that you built around. Um, we all probably had lots of patterns uh, that just fell away throughout the um, the last year or two. 
um, where actually, you know, little triggers that normally get us to do the things we do, like brush our teeth, um, fell away. And all of a sudden, like, we didn't have the thing that, that made us do that thing in the morning. Um, and, uh, you know, those kind of patterns, we all, we're all familiar with that notion of those things falling away. It's really interesting. I think it, it can be incredibly relevant to things you might not expect, but it is sometimes superpowered when it is breaking up people's habits and relevant to their, their new lifestyle or their new life stage. One example I often talk about um, before Carabao is we uh, were launching a different SBOD and we actually found that people going through life events were much more likely to buy a new SBOD subscription. But the audience of people most likely to get it were recently divorced men who had obviously had a life event, but also seemed to have a lot more time on their hands that they wanted to fill, uh, preferably with a new SBOD subscription. So sometimes it's relevant to all audiences, but if it does tap into that new life stage, it can also be doubly relevant. And one example beyond that that we targeted, no, sorry, was uh, Carabao. Uh, and the energy drink market is an incredibly habitual market. It's dominated by people who habitually drink energy drinks at the same moment and pick the same brands to do that. And therefore, for a new brand trying to enter that market, we had to work out a way to, to try and find people that would switch brands or drink energy drinks uh, as a new choice. And so we targeted life events uh, and we went for kind of relevant ones, people who were starting a marathon, people who started a new job, men who had had a new kid, because you can't target uh, women who are breastfeeding with an energy drink uh, and a range of other life events. And this was actually an incredibly powerful way to launch the drink. Uh, and we saw kind of significant sales growth, significant awareness jumps amongst this group as they developed new habits, but also as they reached to a, an energy drink for that first time so that they could do their Monday morning meeting after a night of looking after their newly born child. And I think there's some really interesting ways you can target these live events. Some that are relatively simple from there's a lot of search that people either do through partners like Captify or YouTube, where people will search for how do you do DIY on a new house and then they've moved house or uh, looking at um, kind of different things that you might buy for a wedding uh, or how you do weddings. And it can give you good indicators of the life events. One of the, the creepiest ones and, and we did for Caravan, we've done for a couple of brands is there's mobile tracking technologies. Uh, and they can tell where your phone rests eight hours at night and where it rests eight hours a day. Uh, and on that basis, they could tell if you've recently changed jobs or moved house because your phone would be resting somewhere different eight hours at night or eight hours during the day. Uh, obviously less useful for jobs in lockdown now, but still a, an incredibly weird way to think about how people can track and target different moments in our life. But there's so much in there about, about our lives that are habitual and actually all of these habits can be to some extent detected by these kinds of signals. So actually it does give you an opportunity to think differently about say convenience, for instance, convenience shopping, um, you know, and, and, and this change that we've all seen of people working from home a lot more, it, it changes your shopping habits. It changes where you'll, where will be convenient for you to go. Um, so in a practical sense, like actually, although proximity is always important, actually when is that proximity and, and what is it likely to influence in terms of uh, shopping habits will all come in at this point. You know? Exactly. And it, it's incredibly powerful. I think it's about university studies are estimated about 45% of our behavior is habitual, regularly done to the same cues and the same routine. But also, if, if you can tap into someone while they're forming a new habit, you won't just drive necessarily one, two, three new sales, you've got the potential to become get a new long term customer. Because if they form that new habit with you in either as purchase or consumption, 
they could become someone who buys you long term. And uh, for more about habits, check out our previous webinar on habits, anyone who wants to, um, or, or, or hit us up for it. We've got a lot of stuff to say about that. Okay, next. So finally, as well as thinking about who you can target and when, there's a real opportunity to leverage the gap between claimed and actual behavior to think about those moments and times that you might target someone. So a good example of this was gambling, uh, which admittedly is something you might expect people to not tell the truth about. But we, we did traditional research to begin with, looking at when people gambled. And interestingly, self-reporting, people said they were most likely to be on their own or they were most likely to be with friends. And then we looked at touch points data where people recorded who they were with, combined with the passive data of when they were using the gambling apps on their phone. And what you saw was that that self-reporting was deeply flawed. They were actually most likely to be on their own, but then they were next most likely to be with their partner, next most likely to be with their children, next most likely to be with their parents, and then most likely to be with their friends. And I think in this instance, it's not necessarily that people lied, it's that we remember those peak contexts of betting with friends, watching the game, rather than the hours and hours we spent betting to try and ease boredom. And therefore, it can give us the wrong impression of the types of times we should target and the type of mood and emotion people are in when they are betting. Actually, it's much more to do with boredom, much more to do with distraction than it is making the game even more exciting than when you're with your mates. I should point out that I'm never this bored with my parents or my parents, partner or children um, that I would re resort to betting. This is just never going to happen. Oops, sorry, I've gone too far. Uh, I haven't got children yet, but I could imagine being that bored from what I've seen of other adults with theirs. Um, I think the other thing here is that it was really interesting the difference between betting and downloading a new app. And actually, downloading a new app often happened most heavily on Saturday morning. And so if you wanted new customers, that was a really good time to target instead of during in-game, when people were often too distracted to be looking at getting a new app to bet with. And so we focused on that early time, partly with digital, but also there's a BT auction where you have to blindly auction for the different spots between games. Uh, and back then people would often go for the in-game spot as, as best, but we went for the 12.30 kickoff uh, on a Saturday, knowing that that actually reflected the peak time that people were likely to download a new betting app, which as a launch was what was absolutely key to us rather than usage. So again, just understanding that behavior really trying to get to people's actual behavior uh, rather than self-reporting. You, you can get to a much better strategy. Yeah, and I think the other thing is that self-reported behavior is the same behavior that they report to everybody else. So the savvy marketer can also use the gap between what people always say and what they actually do in reality. And this is one that certainly I've used in, in grocery where all the time, whenever anybody talks about, anybody asks questions about where they shop for groceries and why they choose their preferred grocery supplier, value for money always comes top um, and it's like, well, it's value for money regardless of whether you'll get value for money from Waitrose or from Aldi or from um, Asda and the answer is always value for money um, but people interpret it um, grocers interpret it as meaning price value and um, cheap cheap products which isn't actually what people mean but what's really interesting is the answers are always suggested by the research um, these are never prompt these are these are always prompted answers and actually if you watch what people do and why they, how they choose in reality and you get a very different picture because actually what you start to find is that happiness, which no one would ever report, actually comes really higher up, uh, much, much higher up. So if you really wanted to um, make people uh, spend more time with you and spend more money with you, 
you actually want to make them happy in school, but you also want to let them spend spend time with you productively. Um, so actually, uh, make sure that the, the experience feels efficient and easy for them, so that they can have they have the mental space to browse and shop with you uh, and, and identify things that they they might not otherwise have found. The thing that really frustrates shoppers is not being able to find what they're looking for and, and actually having a frictionful experience uh, in store uh, where they're constantly searching and, and, and looking around for things. Much more likely to spend spend time uh, uh, to leave empty-handed uh, if they've had to look for a product. So in the reality of it is familiarity is incredibly important to how people shop. Everybody knows the layout of their local supermarket, but ease is a massive factor in how people do all of what they do in, in shopping. I think on the mood and shopping, knowing this, one of the things I'm now doing, as many of us try to lose a few pounds that we've developed over lockdown, is make sure that I eat before I go shopping. Because if you're not hungry, you buy less snacks and less other food and don't have done that house. So that's kind of my one tip is eat before you go shopping and you won't pick up as much unhealthy food. Yeah, and the flip side of that is I remember us spending a lot of money in the Apple store in New York after we'd had a very sugary drink of some kind that seemed to give us a whole load of uh, reason to go, which actually sort of lends itself to the next example, which is um, one that we did with Nike and, and DW Fitness, um, where actually, you know, part of what we found here was that whilst people would never report that they'd be interested in, in buying gear necessarily in the, in the changing room of a, of a gym, uh, the reality is the adrenaline levels are up, the endorphin levels are up, um, and you're open to new experiences. Um, and actually, you might be open to the very kind of gear that would enable those new experiences. Um, so actually, this environment provides a really good, good, good sales opportunity if, you, if done right. Um, and and uh, was able to provide people with a really easy, simple way to transfer from an interest in a new class or a new kind of um, gym activity to the gear you need to do that best. Um, so it's a really kind of key moment to latch onto and, and use, whilst nobody would have said that's what they were going to do. Great. This reminds me that the only time you'd ever pay £20 for a photograph is in that minute after you get off the log flu and you've got <laughs> the adrenaline running. Yeah, I just I just succumbed to exactly that experience on um, uh, my my son's uh, uh, under nines football tournament where uh, we ended up with a £15 framed photo of him, which we could have taken any time ourselves in the back garden. Um, OK, so on to the next example of how you can capitalise on this. Uh, and this is about taking ownership of the decision process, like actually being compared for the right reasons. Because what we know about how people's brains work is that actually they can, broadly speaking, make very quick judgments without thinking um, on six key factors, money, effort, time, risk, individuality, and conscious thought. All of these factors are so natural to us and so easy for our system one brains to process that we do them all the time without thinking. And because we do them all the time without thinking, they're incredibly susceptible to biases uh, and nudges. Um, which means that all biases and nudges tend to fit around this pattern quite neatly. So if we take control of these comparisons, if we, take, if we deliberately put a number in somebody's head um, or make something feel considerably easier or really put the focus on now and seizing the moment or reducing the uncertainty or the sense of risk around a particular product or show that everybody else does the same thing um, or just make it so easy to, to think about that, that it just sort of drifts under the radar, um, we can have an immediate impact on those decisions that people take. Just a few examples. The, these are the kind of traditional biases everybody knows, but they all fit very nicely into this, this, uh, this metric model of ours. So this is a really easy way for us to get our uh, heads around how we might influence people in a particular moment by understanding how their brains really work in that moment. Um, classic examples of using money or using a number to influence people is putting that number in someone's head and then comparing it to another one. So 
um, 15 pounds look at 14.99 looks pretty good up against 299.99 this is this happens all the time um, we we use these kind of patterns of how do we what do, what do we want to be compared against that middle column both visually and in numerical terms wants to be compared against the one next to it um, we know that actually if you get people started on something, if people are already part way through a journey, they're much more likely to complete it. So it's, it's more likely that you'll fill in a, um, a, a nine part card that's already got a stamp on it than you would do an eight one. Um, so it, if, you, if you get people part way down the journey, it's called the gold gradient effect. If you get people started, they're more likely to finish. Um, and actually uh, that little um, increase in motivation for people, it can be enough to get them to finish a journey. Same principle applies to all kinds of chunking activity. If you can break things down into easily manageable chunks for people, uh, they're much more likely to get that, get that activity completed than if it feels like one big thing. Um, we know that the power of the moment, immediacy is incredibly important because our, again, our brains are much better at processing what's just happened or is about to happen uh, rather than trying to imagine the future or, or think back to the distant past. So the power of now is incredible. Um, actually, if you can get people to feel as if something is urgent right now, it, uh, or there's a reason to act on it right now, as a lot of these kind of um, these kind of examples work, you know other people are looking at it now. You know that it's uh, that someone's bought it in the last 30 minutes. Um, you know that people have it in the basket right now. This is playing on that sense of urgency um, that, that people naturally kind of feel. Um, you can also play on fear of missing out um, or scarcity or the sense that actually um, if you don't act now, um, somebody else is going to get it and you won't be able to act later. Um, again, these are all classic in, in many ways, classic sales and design techniques um, that behavioral science explains why they work. Uh, it explains how you can make use of them and when you should choose one or the other. Um, so all of these kind of patterns um, we see again and again, and we know that they work. What we don't know is, uh, or, or what most marketers don't use is, um, the, the, the conscious process of deciding which one to use at what particular time, because these resources are in short, uh, have to be in short supply for it to matter. Um, same with the herd instinct. Um, put the app there. This is yours, isn't it, Ron? Yes, I think yeah, there's lots of different ways you can tap this, and social norms is, is quite a well-known one. We actually just had a, a small test with uh, Fred Olson, where initially we put um, reviews, uh, and you know you, you can call it reviews, you can call it authority bias, but it decreased CPAs by 33%. And then we actually put on a social uh, norm message, which just said how many people had already saved money and already booked with Grelson. And we saw a 53% decrease uh, versus the Jack had in CPA, showing the incredible power that this can have with just changing the smallest copy line in there to include a social norm more than halved the CPA. So these, these small changes can have a massively powerful impact if incorporated across websites, across different forms of creative. Yeah, it shows the importance of testing, doesn't it? Well, that's the other, the other part of this is that, you know, any of these techniques could be tried um, and you wouldn't know straight off which, which one would be the most effective. You might have narrowed it down to being all about the herd, but you wouldn't know how to use the herd necessarily without putting it to, to the test a little. So it's always worth having that kind of that opportunity to do test. Exactly. And I think the testing is so important because often all of these biases that we've just talked about are things that people don't know they're influenced by and don't know impacts their behavior and so wouldn't tell you to do. Um, and therefore you can test them and see the actual effect it can have. I think this is just a really nice example of people being on autopilot and being influenced, but, but not realizing and, and not even accepting after they're told. It's a, a famous behavioral study done, I think at a Leicester University where they watch people buy wine and they uh, put on French music, traditional French music, 
and saw that when they did, 77% of people bought French wine. And then they put on traditional German music, which has a very distinct sound, and 73% of people uh, bought German wine. So people were heavily influenced by the type of music they were being bought. Interestingly, they interviewed people as they came out, and only 2% of interviews customers recognized the music influenced their choice. And 86% refused to believe the music would affect their choice. So that autopilot, those decisions we're making and the things that influence them, it's not only that we can't necessarily tell people what influences us, it's even when they tell us we don't believe them. Uh, and I think that just shows the power of testing these things rather than uh, doing kind of traditional research that might just ask people if they'd be influenced by something or if they like an ad. Yeah, so important. I think, you know, this is all ex great examples of how our brains um, behave without us being aware of it. And actually, often we, you know, we can't explain it ourselves and we will just deny it. And most of our, most of our marketing response behavior, um, the reasons why we actually bought an Apple computer or shop at the supermarket we shop at, aren't the reasons we'd give it an, um, if asked that question in research. So you can't trust the backward look any more than you can trust the forward look. Um, and what, what you have to do is make sure that you've got the ability to think about how we'll measure what people will do and how we'll judge how they respond. I think that the final thing on these biases just says that they're quite well known, but there is a need to combine them with audience insights. So we talked about social norms. One of the famous examples is you tell people that other people pay their taxes on time, they're more likely to do so as well. But actually there is a group of very well-off people that that doesn't work on because uh, they feel special and different to other people. And so you need a much more message in, around how their contribution helps, their specific contribution will make a difference and play up to how special they feel. So, you know, and, and the context of the power of now as it's grown in use, you might need to consider how and where you use it so that people don't dismiss it as something they've seen elsewhere. It does, it does really rely on a bit more work and understanding to use effectively the right audience in the right time. Yeah, and I think the other thing to stress about it is we are talking about the decisions people take quickly, uh, instinctively. Um, it's in the moment decision making. And, and again, to get the, the difference between shoppers and consumers in here again, what people in consumption mode or planning mode um, might, might actually think about would be very different because actually the price of something doesn't matter when you're in consumption and how much time or how urgent it is doesn't matter because you're not in shopper mode. In shopper mode, you're, you're much more um, prone to those biases because you're under pressure and you're, you've got short resources and you need to make a decision. Um, that's not the case in, in consumption mode. And so you can't use those techniques in the same way. You have to use, you have to delve deeper into what's motivating people. What are they lacking? What's the, what's, what will satisfy their underlying need? Not what will get them over the, over the threshold quick as possible. It's interesting the IPA research into uh, splits between brand and acquisition spend by different categories and different types of behavior. I remember they actually saw one of the highest areas that you needed brand spend for was a high research category which they found as a surprising result. They thought where it was high research, people would go away and having more acquisition activity that was information they found and as they researched online would be better. But it actually turned out that actually in a high research category, a lot of the time, people have already made the decision and then they spend four hours justifying it to themselves, filling in that confirmation bias. And so if you haven't managed to influence them right early on at the start with brand activity, you're not going to be able to influence them later on because they're just wanting to confirm what they already believe and what they already know they should do. They know they want that giant flat screen TV. They just want to find information that will tell them it's a good decision. Great. Um, 
Oh, yeah, sorry, that was our last one we didn't introduce, did we? Uh, so, test response behavior load. I think all of this information is, is all really useful, but it also has to inform how we, we test our ideas. Um, Roy Sutherland has a quote, and I think it's a good one, that uh, academics would be shocked by the amount that advertisers spend on research compared to experimentation. And so the first thing is it, it is good where you can, in digital, in other places, test how it actually works in the real world because what we often find is slight context changes, the complexity of how we make decisions, it's, it's seeing that you've actually influenced behavior is, is the strongest thing you can do. But that isn't always possible. And so one of the things in that context, I think, is uh, looking at the way we can do research to, to try and give us the best guide to what will work. Uh, and there's often the first step is, is not making mistakes, control for your biases or for people's biases and use implicit testing, Think about the heuristics that people might not tell you about and also go to biometrics. So understand how an ad actually makes someone feel a little bit about how it is influencing uh, you know, their instinctive feelings in system one rather than system two. And this is something that at Behave we offer and we run for a lot of our clients and a lot of brands is the ability to test their ads using biometrics, facial coding, uh, eye tracking so that they can make sure that they are as effective as possible. And often this isn't about giving an ad a score of good or bad. It's about making sure that the ad is tweaked in minor ways if needed so that the impact lands as strongly as it possibly can. Uh, and this is an example of a nasal spray where what we found was that when the character was introduced, there was quite a lot of text. There was some distraction of other things happening on screen and people were frowning. They weren't engaged. They didn't get any joy from the character. The brief period that the character was then fully there with no distractions, they did see joy, we did see a positive response, but that was actually too short to keep them engaged. And so by the time you use that character to segue into the information you wanted to give people, you'd actually lost them, lost the engagement, lost the joy, uh, and weren't having an effective result. And therefore we could just tweak the ad to make sure that the engagement with the character was long enough, the joy that it was evoking, was strong enough that it would carry that engagement throughout the ad and it would be fully effective. And so there's really interesting ways you can use this to make sure that you can just tweak the ad to be as effective as possible. And I think there's interesting work that can be done around it with media as well. So you can test the ad and the different ways you might run it and the cuts that you need to make for media to understand any drop off in performance. So how does the ad work with sound on versus sound off? could inform whether a Facebook video strategy would work effectively. If your ad has significant drop off with sound off then you, you know that Facebook might be a slightly weaker platform, you can test different second lengths. So how much engagement do you still get with a six second cut down or a 15 second cut down versus your 30, which can inform the value of whether you use YouTube pre-roll or whether you wanna pay for longer form ads on the service. So it, it can be used not just to tweak the ad, but also to understand the different types of media platforms uh, and ads that you can buy that would be most effective and still land the core proposition and the emotional impact you're looking to have. Okay, uh, and finally, because I know we're, we're not giving people much time for questions here, so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll wrap up fairly soon. Um, this is just a really lovely example of, of how actually you can use alternative research methods to, to properly understand what what not just what people have in their heads but how those ideas got in there in the first place um it's an example of 
the move from Charmin to Cushell, um, where the, the the actually the, the company that bought the rights to uh, to um, or bought the customer base effectively, but couldn't use the the bear or the name Charmin, um, and wanted to find a way to retain a, a good chunk of that audience. Um, and actually, that 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 process was a semiotics process. So semiotics is the the science of signs and signals, um, and it basically lets you understand what people are taking out of or what people are um, are, are really. Um, uh, using of the information that the stimulus that's coming towards them um, and actually people people take the bear in a particular way um, it's something to do with uh, adult humans not being allowed to go to the toilet it's all right for bears and puppies and, and children but uh, adult humans don't do that kind of thing um, so it's sort of a, an anthropomorphical thing that lets you get away with that uh, and the shaman for some reason people took out a kind of french classy charm to it um, uh, and, and so actually what they did was they retained those, those kind of elements. They kept a koala and they kept the sh of Cushel and this sort of French sound to it um, to keep the classy vibe and, uh, and keep the kind of the, the animal vibe. But everything else changed um, and um, nobody minded. Um, people were effortlessly trans uh, transferred from one brand to the other. In fact, they sold more um, because they'd, they'd been able to hone in on those signals um, that actually mattered to people um, and, and actually emphasize those signals, those cutenesses, those little elements, so that actually people could really take, take those messages out of, uh, out of Cushel in a way that they only uh, didn't know they were in the case of, uh, of Charmin. So it's a really lovely example of being able to uh, use something people would never been able to articulate without, um, without the right method to look at it. Uh, and semiotics delivers that kind of promise. So we've raced you through a whole world of um, uh, the intention gap, the, the, the gap between what people say and what they'll do. Um, we've, we've talked a great deal. Uh, I'm aware we've probably, um, that's, that certainly there's been a whole flurry of um, Q and A's uh, and chat comments, which um, uh, Pedro will hopefully help me and will now navigate. Um, as, as we turn to questions. Um, but uh, hopefully you've enjoyed that session and um, we're very glad to talk further with anyone who wants to. Uh, but over to you, Pedro, what have you got for us? Steve, sorry, thank you for that. I was just listening to Katie Perry, but I'm back now, good to have you. Um, and Will, thank you very much. So we've had quite a lot of questions. Uh, one question that's come up, I mean, I think everyone will agree that was hugely interesting and fascinating. And it's amazing uh, how influential the mind is and what effects us in certain ways. One of the questions that's come up is really, where do you start? I mean, there's so much in there. There's so much richness. And wh where, where does a brand begin? Well, we, find, we find quite often the best place to begin is the work that you're already doing or doing a lot of. Um, because if you just take one small sample of that, say take emails or take your DMs or take something that, or a digital display, which is something that's fairly easy to, uh, to test alternatives to, um, that's a good place to start because you can straight away start applying those biases. You can start applying that metric model to that and say, how can we, what could we tweak here uh, to see if it has a bigger effect? What can we tweak to see if, um, if we just put the emphasis on ease or we put the emphasis on um, risk, um, will it affect how people respond to it? That's something we've done with people just to kind of almost audit what you do or, or even just take an individual piece of communication and see if you can make it better. Um, because it might be that that, that kind of approach just lets you get started. Another way to do it really simply, sorry, Will, I will let you get a word in edgeways at some point. Um, another way to do it is, is to take existing research and, and look at it through a behavioral lens. So look at whether or not it might have suffered from some of these prime, uh, priming effects. Because one, one of the things that we find is actually there's no, there's no, there's no harm in having done research another way. Um, we just have to be careful about the conclusions we draw from it. So part of what we'll do as a service to people is look at the research they've conducted um, and just look out for where those effects might have might have influenced them so that we can draw just the right conclusions from it. 
So it's not about, you know, don't have to suddenly turn your whole marketing approach or research approach on your head, although that is an option. Um, you can actually just sort of look at what you've done and make sure that you, you know, you're kind of work, you, you're incrementally changing what you do to take more account of this, uh, of these gaps and these alternatives. And I just to back that up, I think the power of this is there can be incredibly small changes that have a big effect. And often we see a process with clients where we'll use some of the, the, the biases and ideas to change something digital, change something on site and see a big impact will give us the right and ability to have the larger conversation. I'd say for that larger picture conversation, you've, you'll have done the initial work of understanding the business context, but it's really trying to answer the question of what's the behavioral challenge? What is the behavior we're trying to influence and how can we understand what's happening at the key moment of purchase, the key moment of research, the key moment of usage? And if we know that just asking people isn't right, uh, how can we use other types of research or to ethnography, different types of tracking, uh, different types of uh, biometrics to understand that key moment that we're trying to influence. And once you have that, from there you can build, well, how do we influence that moment? What will be the best creative approach? What will be the best media approach? So I think that's the place to start or just you know, send an email to a behavioral specialist agency and they can help you start the process themselves. Great, great idea. I think that's a good point. Well, one thing I'd add to it is, is actually, you know, that point about setting the right objectives, because, because actually if you narrow your objectives and you're realistic about what a piece of communication is capable of achieving, instead of thinking that leaflet is going to make people change to electric car, you think it, it might just get them to pick up the phone. You, you, you sort of narrow the focus of what the susceptibility to change you're looking for is. Um, you, you can actually start getting the results you're looking for and build from there. So almost sort of get micro about, about what kind of action you really want out of a, a piece of communication. Um, this is the Weedsbix example, but even smaller, like actually what, what do we really want people to do as a result of seeing this thing? And we always ask for that. What's the default behavior? What would they do anyway? What's the desired behavior? What, how realistic is it to bridge that gap? Um, and if you can bridge it realistically with the right kind of, um, the right kind of activity, um, then, then you're onto something and you can do some good marketing. Great, thanks both. And actually it leads on to this other question, which is how do you suggest um, brands build a culture of behavioral science within their marketing teams? I mean, obviously start with sharing some of these webinars and some of the research and tools that we have on our websites, because lots of good content and rich content that you can start sharing with the rest of the team. Is there any, anything else that you'd recommend for them to build that culture of the understanding behavioral science, including it in their thinking? Yeah, we'd, we'd certainly start with, um, you know, what, we'd, what we've been doing for quite a few people is, is actually just sort of talk them through the, the basic principles. Behavioural science can feel sort of quite um, academic, maybe inf interesting, but not useful. Um, and it, to, to make real use of it, you do have to have a framework. You do have to have a, a way of building around it. And so, you know, we, we certainly have that and we have the opportunity to show people why motivations work in this particular way, triggers work in this particular way, metric helps us define this behavior in market and in context. It, once you get that idea and you've seen it played out in a number of different circumstances, you can start to see where those gaps can be filled and where, where you might like, where you might think more about the kind of the principle of the behavior you're trying to change rather than the, the message you're trying to get across for, uh, you know, quite often marketing has been caught in this world of proposition for ages. And actually there's no evidence that saying the same thing over and over again necessarily does anything because actually there's a different message needed at different parts in that journey. So yeah, actually taking a more behavioral approach isn't, isn't, shouldn't be scary, but actually there is a lot there that's sort of off-putting in the way that um, it's often delivered um, at the moment. I think one of the things is often people, as with all these things, can spend too much time talking about process and not enough about output. 
I know David Halpern talking about using behavioral science in the civil service said the real big jump moment for him was getting a lot of senior people in the room and showing them small cost-free tweaks they'd made to things and the big effect they'd had. And civil service like business loves things that don't cost much, but can have a big effect. And I think often there's that process. If we can create examples within your business of showing small changes, having a big effect and bring some examples from outside your business of behavioral science having a big effect and a big output. Then we talk to the board, we talk to other people, not about you know, the ways people make decisions, but about how we can use a framework to make small changes or changes that don't cost that much to have a big effect. And that generally gets people engaged, listening and, and wanting to take the ideas on board. Perfect, thank you, Bryce. And uh, I'll do one more, because I know we're coming up on time. So last question I'll take is, uh, how applicable is this to the B2B decision-making process? Completely. Um, not, not this this part of it. So it's quite interesting. Like again, uh, we talk about different parts of this model. There's the part that's about motivation, which is really about when you're thinking but not doing. Um, and and um, a lot of the time, there, there is a thoughtful, um, stakeholder-filled world of B2B, um, but not all the time. Um, uh, and ultimately, the same basic kind of brain processes do drive the same basic kinds of behaviors about how people prioritize things. So for us, it's absolutely applicable. Uh, certainly, all of the same fallacies that we've highlighted above um, apply in both audiences, um, and, and many of the same solutions can be brought to bear as well. I think it correlates to the, the point made earlier about often the high research category brand activity is really important because people just spend a lot of time justifying the decision they'd already made. And in B2B, it's the same. We're humans. We have the same bias of influencing us. We just like to spend more time filling in an Excel spreadsheet afterwards, justifying our decision to ourselves or other people. But that is often a process of confirmation bias. And therefore, it's incredibly relevant. And we've had lots of experiences, some with Epson, where we've seen a massive discrepancy between what people have said and what they actually do. So I think it's, it's just as relevant to B2B as consumer market. And really understanding how the motivation got into people's heads. If you frame that motivation right, if, you, if the frame of reference people are making the decisions against, even if you're doing sort of tenders or anything else, if, if basically you've been able to shape what people are asking for of the market, um, then, then you win in, in B2B, um, just, just because actually you're the thing they're comparing against you've put the idea in their head that what you need out of a printer or what you need out of a, um, a software solution is this characteristic that you've focused on in the way that you talk about it, that that frames the decision. And once you frame the decision, you've got a much better chance of winning because you're going to be judged on the parameters that you chose rather than the, the parameters the competition chose. Perfect. I that was spot on. I think um, really useful. So I think I'm going to wrap up there. Thank you all again for coming and enjoy the rest of the afternoon. This podcast is brought to you by Total Media, the behavioral planning agency, an innovative approach to behavioral insights to deliver more effective marketing results and business growth.